Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome over again, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And here today, we are going to have a repeat guest, Georgie Dinkoff, who is a major student of Ray Pete, who passed away uh, a few months ago and thank, around Thanksgiving of 2022 and had le- leaves behind a legacy of really iconoclastic wisdom on how to address pretty foundational strategies of how to optimize biological health uh, that really were in stark contrast to a lot of the positions I previously held, uh, being a strong, firm advocate of keto and going into ketosis on a regular basis. And uh, in a previous podcast with Georgie, we, we are in complete agreement that keto can be very, very useful initially in transitioning people from uh, who are metabolically inflexible, which just happens to be about 95% of the population of the United States. There's virtually about everyone, except for most of the people watching this, of course, but virtually everyone would benefit from short-term of that. But here's the problem. when If you continue it long-term, you're going to run into major problems. And almost everyone who's done this long-term will, will testify to that. So if you haven't tried that strategy, you just have to need to be really careful. So, um, we're going to talk about a lot of questions that I had in the last few interviews that just didn't, we ran out of time and didn't have a chance to discuss. But one of the responses we've had in the past, and um, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, Georgie, but it's sort of the elephant in the room. Uh, I firmly believe that this, these strategies that you're embracing and teaching are foundationally accurate and will help just about everyone who integrates them. But one of the uh, major health challenges that the, we face as a nation and really pretty much globally uh, is, is this struggle with optimizing our weight. And we're going to yeah. go deep into specifics of that. So the, sort of the elephant in the room is, uh, you know, you being one of the main advocates of this. I'm wondering if you can help people understand what your struggles are with weight, because I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, I'm, the challenges of you're teaching something and it doesn't, it looks to be a bit out of congruency. So I'm wondering if you can address that right off the bat. Oh, when I was actually uh, doing keto, uh, just as we discussed in the previous interviews, I lost uh, quite a bit of weight for the first six months. And then mm-hmm. I started rapidly regaining it. So I ballooned to about 260 pounds. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm down after uh, switching over to the rapey diet. Now I'm down to about 200. Uh, now that wow, so you've lost 60 pounds just doing the rapey diet. I have pictures that are older. I can I can show you basically. No, no, I, I believe you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't trust you. I don't. Two times yeah. larger than it is now. <laughs> wow. uh, and it wasn't it wasn't bone or muscle tissue. It was basically edema and and uh, potentially fat as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, so uh, I mean, so the, the question is, what is the ideal BMI, right? So so we're struggling. Well, it's not really. I, it's not really BMI. BMI is a, a is a, right. an accurate measure. I mean, they use it for studies because it's simple and it's easy. But ideally, you you want to use lean body mass, and exactly. BMI is a, is a surrogate for that. A, a simple, easy surrogate is usually good, to, easy to put together when you're doing studies, as rather than measuring lean body mass. 
Right. So now they're trying to switch, I think, to uh, to the ratio of uh, waist to hip. Uh, yes, which that's, that's an accurate uh, one too. Right. Yeah, uh, much better because it basically it's the central obesity really that's that's killing mm-hmm. us. Um, and then there's another uh, 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 a number of studies came out recently showing that hand grip strength is also a, a very reliable indicator of your overall health. Um, so um, if you look at the, the 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 way the nation has been been getting more obese, uh, I mean you can actually perfectly trace it to the introduction of the seed oils, mm-hmm. and we're not consuming more sugar than we used to. In fact, if you look at the old ads from the 1950s of the housewives feeding their children, and they were meeting, eating tremendous amount of calories as sugar, and a lot of it coming from ice cream and and soda. Um, and we didn't have that problem back then with obesity. Uh, some people say, no, well, it's because we used to move more. That's also not true. Actually, now we move more uh, than we used to move in the 50s uh, on average. Uh, and perhaps the greatest indicator there's something going on in our environment that's, that's basically causing this obesity is that the fact that wild animals living in the vicinity of people are also getting fatter. Okay. <laughs> so, so I think that, pets, that's pretty much it. Yeah. too. Pets. Yeah, exactly. Um, so something's going on. So what could it be? Well, these animals, I mean, there's probably the endocrine disruptors. And if we assume poop is also an endocrine disruptor, which it is, then it's got to be something in the food. And the one big change that occurred between the 1950s and now is the massive overconsumption of cereals at the expense of, the, of saturated fats. Um, so uh, in terms of struggling with obesity, um, I think we mentioned uh, probably in the first interview that my take is that it's an endocrine problem. So if you're struggling with weight, which you cannot lose, um, I think it's a good idea to maybe do some kind of a blood work for, you know, the the, the, the steroids, because they're the ones that uh, mostly determine how much calories are out, right? Versus, you know, not so much where the calories in. Um, and every single person that has been struggling with excessive weight that has been emailing me their blood results, uh, without, a, without an exception, their cortisol is either highest normal or above their range. Uh, both the AM and the PM value. Uh, their thyroid is actually, um, you know, worse than optimal. In fact, pretty bad for most people. Uh, they recently changed the TSH range. Used to the upper limit used to be six. Now I think it's like down to three or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so suddenly, I think it was five. I think they had a five before. Yeah. Uh, so, but they they almost have the upper upper uh, limit of normal. So now mm-hmm. suddenly you have like a very large number of people being basically hypothyroid. Um, and uh, this change occurred only in the last two or three years. I don't think people that were considered uh, normal thyroid before their doctor saw the news and suddenly called them in at all of them and said, let's, let's recheck you. Now, a lot of people are out there that are actually officially hypothyroid as per the new regulations, but they haven't, they haven't rechecked the results because they're thinking everything's fine. The doctor probably hasn't caught up yet with these news because it takes a, f- a few years for this mm-hmm. to propagate to the system. So the fact that we're struggling with 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 overweight um, uh, issue as a as a nation uh, is actually uh, uh, also mimicked by uh, people who are adopting the so-called Western lifestyle and diet in India and China. I think China has the highest number of diabetes per capita, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, don't worry, America, <laughs> not the worst in this <laughs> in this specific uh, uh, chart. And actually, India, I think, is like second place. And then you have the United States and uh, some Western European countries uh, on a distant third. Um, yeah. But that, that will be my take. I think we are eating the, the um, you know, in the foods that are making, uh, the lowering our metabolic rate. We're living an excessively stressful lifestyle. Uh, that's probably not a surprise for anybody. And may, many people think, well, stress is good for you. Well, it's good as a hormetic response in an acute 
situation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But not when you have Life chronically saving. elevated cortisol, right? Uh, every doctor will tell you if, you, if you have a chronically elevated cortisol, you will develop the so-called spectrum mm -hmm. of the Cushing syndrome, which we also mentioned one of the first interviews. And one of the defining features of elevated cortisol or higher than normal is that you have central obesity. Mm -hmm. um, so that to me is, is really the problem. We, we have higher than normal, higher than desirable levels of stress, suboptimal diet, um, and, and we're surrounded by a number of different endocrine disruptors, which are now proven to cause reliably obesity in animal models, even in very small amounts. Uh, most of those are found in plastics. Yeah. And you mentioned it was, a, it was an endocrine problem with the obesity. And it's further compounded by the fact that there's this ma massive confusion about uh, obesity being a uh, primarily a calories in, calorie out yeah. issue which we know is wrong. So people adopt that. They go low calorie, maybe a thousand calories, 500, 1500, you know, far lower than their metabolic needs. As, and then that further exacerbates the issue because it, their body just shuts down because they're, they're thinking they're dying of starvation and they, and they, they want to stay alive. Yeah. And uh, you shut down all the necessary functions that uh, everything that makes us human, you're down to basically a semi slumber, like semi hibernation. Um, mm -hmm. And the only thing that remains is the heartbeat, which goes really low when you're actually uh, fasting. And, and many people say, oh, that's great. It means my heart, you know, doesn't need to pump as hard. Everything's great. No, it actually is a very good indication that you have a low levels of T3 in the blood. Um, mm -hmm. And they've confirmed that because when they gave these people a little bit of T3 uh, while they're dieting, they actually their heart rate recovered to where it used to be before they started the dieting. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think anybody would argue that low T3 um, uh, is, is not a good sign. It's in the long term. It's, it's not a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably most people would benefit from taking a T3 supplement. Uh, and I, I do view this as supplement. It's just an, an endocrine sort of crutch, but it helps while you're getting your, your system back in the line. Now, you mentioned the uh, fact that despite people were having large amounts of ice cream and soda, they weren't gaining weight. As a culture, we weren't. I mean, some people were, obviously, but that we weren't seen, we hadn't seen the dramatic increase we had since the 70s. But I believe in the 70s, uh, soda changed quite dramatically that we had the introduction of high fructose corn syrup. And that's a pretty foundational concept that's mind boggling that most people don't fully appreciate. I think we addressed it in one of the previous interviews, but I think it's worth repeating here. The fact that there's a dramatic difference between high fructose corn syrup and cane sugar. Yep. So, and it, you know, so why don't you review that and remind us of the, the differences so there that is literally night and day, two different, there are two different foods. Yeah, if, if the high fructose corn syrup is properly processed, means there's no remaining starch, then metabolically it's pretty close to sugar because it's about 55% fructose, 45% glucose. However, uh, several studies took some sugary drinks that are sweetened with high fructose corn syrup and started looking at the composition of the drinks. And then they found a tremendous amount of starch leftover, which wasn't accounted for in the actual calories listed on the label. So let's say you take a can of Coke and it says like you're taking 100 calories. In fact, when they took into account all of the starch that was in the Coke, that was basically unprocessed high fructose corn syrup because that's they use cornstarch to produce it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, then it came down to about 400 calories. So yeah, sure, if you're downing three or four of these a day, you're basically getting closer to the 2,000 calories while you're thinking it's only three to 400, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then on top of that, you're eating everything else. Now, if this was pure sugar, in other words, uh, you know, just 55% fructose, 45% glucose, it will probably not cause that much of an issue, assuming you're not loading yourself up on the PUFAs as well. 
Mm-hmm. However, um, basically, uh, you know, the starch that is in there is not only uh, calorically adding to the to the to the equation, but also starch because there the, it's a these are very tiny particles. They've been made that way in order to facilitate the conversion of the cornstarch into the high fructose corn syrup. They actually are capable of preserving through the intestine and into the blood system unprocessed, um, and this immediately triggers, at the very least, an allergic reaction. Uh, the body does not like starch particles in your blood. And in fact, it's a very well-established test for, for causing an allergic reaction by injecting um, undigested starch particles into animals. And then they give them antihistamines and whatnot to, to, to study the anaphylactic reaction. Uh, there are cases, there are reported case studies of people getting an anaphylactic reaction by drinking a drink sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. I don't know of any case of a person actually being a, a documented case of people having a, a allergy to sugar, right? To the pure mm-hmm. sugar, which is the cane sugar. But if this is triggering the allergic reaction, there's something else in there. It's not the sugar causing it. And I think at this point, it's pretty conclusively established that it's the undigested tiny starch particles, nanoparticles uh, that are now present in many different pharmaceuticals, as starch and other things. That's probably a separate discussion. And these are causing the anaphylactic reaction, or at the very least, a low-grade inflammatory reaction, which will trigger the release of histamine, the nitric oxide, the serotonin, which we discussed previously. Um, and in general, you're, you're going to have like a situation where you'll be sneezing, you'll have itchy eyes, right? And you think, oh, it's it's normal. Well, it's not normal it's in the, if it's in the winter, right? If you're mm-hmm. getting a, a year-long allergic reaction, uh, or at least the symptoms of it, something's going on around you, and it's probably the food that you eat. And the high fructose corn syrup is perfectly capable of causing these things on a daily basis when you're eating. So much more calories than what are listed on the label, and basically starch in the, in the nanoparticle form that is capable of basically getting into your bloodstream undigested, which triggers all kinds of inflammatory and allergic reactions. And there's also the issue that the these starch particles serve as fuel for bacteria in your gut yeah. and increases certain pathogenic bacteria and uh, the endotoxin from these bacteria contribute to inflammatory conditions. Yeah, if it gets to the colon undigested, uh, then then basically the, that reaction will happen as well. Now, unfortunately, even though the high fructose corn syrup, sugar, sugary drinks and foods are simple sugars that's supposed to be absorbing uh, in the stomach and the upper portion of the small intestine. However, now people are having a very large number of people are starting to get diagnosed with a so-called SIBO condition, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And that's not a good thing. It, it, you should not have bacteria in your small intestine. It should be as close to sterile as possible. Uh, and the question is, well, why is bacteria creeping up from the colon into the small intestine? One explanation, one study made the claim that it's probably because a lot of people are taking the proton pump inhibitor drugs, which are basically decreasing the amount of stomach acid you're producing. And the stomach acid that we're producing is, is there not only to help us with digestion, but also to keep the bacteria basically uh, you know, down to, to, to an acceptable level. So if you're not producing sufficient amount of acid, you're going to get uh, some bacteria colonize your small intestine, either from food or creeping up from the, from the large intestine. Um, and that's not a good thing. Basically, you have bacteria everywhere. So now the, p- the portion of the intestine is supposed to be clean and just focused on absorbing food. Now it's harboring a microbiome. And then if, if you give it any kind of a food that the bacteria can process, you're increasing the turnover and resulting in the endotoxemia that uh, is, is now accepted to cause a large number of, of, of diseases, inclu- especially cardiovascular disease, obesity because of the chronic inflammation that it causes, um, and and um, and now neurological diseases. Alzheimer's now basically uh, 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 has been conclusively 
tied to chronic low-grade endotoxemia. They're still claiming there's a genetic component to it, but they're now admitting that endotoxin is a causative factor in Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So this is a fairly controversial position, uh, especially among people who embrace natural health. Uh, the commonly held belief in the vast majority of people who, who adopt this strategy is that sugar is a pernicious evil. And I held that view for a long time. There's a book written called The Sugar Blues by William Dufty in the 70s, I believe. Uh, there are books that far preceded that that really... Uh, heralded all the challenges with sugar and, and they had their their uh, data to back it up but the, dr pete's position and yours is that not necessarily so and yes there are problems with sugar but it's the, the high fructose corn syrup primarily and in fact pure cane sugar can be a very useful strategy to counteract some of the challenges of the uh, the people uh, holes that people get them into by low carb diet and just adding regular sugar back in can be helpful. Now, yes, fruits would be better whole fruits than processed sugar, but still, there's not a lot of difference as long as there's it's not processed into high fructose corn syrup. And I'm wondering if you can expand uh, or con either confirm or refute that. And if that's the case you know, people are looking for more calories and seeking to increase their carbohydrate intake, and they just don't have access to fruit, which is probably the ideal form of carbohydrates. How problematic would it be to get sugar? And are there any cautions when identifying cane sugar, like I, and brown sugar? Is there a difference between brown sugar and cane sugar? And, you know, how frequently is brown sugar extracted or made from a high fructose corn syrup? Um, I, I think, well, first of all, I do agree uh, that the cane, if the cane sugar, if it's pure, uh, it has a very different uh, overall systemic health effect than the high fructose corn syrup. Um, uh, as they say in the military, you be, be mindful of your weapon because it's, it's always being built by the lowest bidder. Well, the same thing applies in the food industry. Be mindful of what you're eating because it's always produced with the least amount of cost, right? So mm -hmm. whatever gets the largest amount of profit for the, for the producer, that's what is going to get used uh, into, the, into the food supply, not necessarily what's good for you. And it just mm -hmm. happens that the high fructose corn syrup, because corn agriculture is subsidized in the United States and in many other countries, that's mm -hmm. really the main source of, the, of these simple carbohydrates we're getting in the food supply. But because of the presence of starch, and now because of the genetic modification of some of the corns, they're introducing these genes that in animal studies are, when you feed them with a high fructose corn syrup derived from the corn starch from the GMO modified plant, it's triggering allergic reactions. So we don't yet know the long-term health effects, even if we assume, even if we take the large assumption that high fructose corn syrup is similar to sugar metabolically, uh, it's not similar in terms of this the health effects that it, that it, that it causes aside from the starch. Um, it's now known to trigger allergic reactions. So what's, ha what's happening to these genes? I mean, there is also the concept of horizontal gene transfer. Mm -hmm. uh, used to be very controversial, and, and people thought that it only occurs in plants, but now it's known to occur in animals, including humans, and potentially cross-species as well. Um, so the, the, the statement, you are what you eat, is very, very correct. Um, so you may have, you should be mindful of eating things that are known to be inflammatory, but also now coming from uh, mutants that basically we haven't lived with, we haven't evolved to live with, and they may be causing systemic problems if you're ingesting them. As far so as the, the, yeah, okay, go, go ahead. 
as far as the sugar itself, how can you get it in the purest form? Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the sugar that's sold in in a, in a crystal form that is sold in the stores, especially the organic one, is pretty safe. I've actually done lab tests myself on various mm-hmm. different brands, um, and there was only one that was that was said it was imported from China that had higher than acceptable amounts of cadmium. Uh, and mm-hmm. heavy metal contamination is is used to be a problem in sugar distillation uh, mm-hmm. in the industry that produces the sugar, but it looks like you know the most of the Western countries have sorted this out. It's only the one that's coming because it's cheaper that's coming imported from China that seems to be having that problem. Um, so if you're looking for the organic product, you should be okay. Now, some people that have an issue with sugar saying, "Well, it's just empty calories and whatnot." Mm-hmm. Multiple studies demonstrated that honey, which is very similar in composition to just the plain white sugar does not trigger the normal hyperglycemic response that most of the other simple carbohydrates do. In fact, it it improves the the hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetic patients, despite being pure sugar. I think that's like the greatest uh, confirmation that we have there, that sugar is actually not evil, but it depends how you get it and in what form. Um, And uh, uh, an animal study demonstrated that rats, when they're given free access to Coke in the form of Coke, sweetened with sugar, they were eating the equivalent of 8,000 calories daily. So they quadrupled their caloric intake daily without gaining an ounce of fat um, just by drinking Coke. Now, I'm not well, advocating this, this not cane sugar Coke. Not cane sugar Coke. Yes, the Mexican type. I mean, they call it Mexican, but used to be the same in America. It's just now cane yeah. sugar is much more expensive. So they switched to the high fructose corn syrup. So sugar is not dangerous. It's perhaps the only nutrient that was purely designed and we evolved to actually metabolize for fuel. The other two micronutrients, even though we can metabolize them as fuel, they have the you know they come with a lot of strings attached. If you start doing that, right? Uh, uh, Deaminating amino acids and oxidizing them, then turning to glucose and, and oxidizing that, that's dangerous. Creates a lot of ammonia, a lot of other toxic byproducts. And then if we oxidize fats, uh, we covered it, I think, in great detail that if you oxidize in PUFA, then all hell breaks loose. Um, and if you oxidize in saturated fats, it's less dangerous, but in the long run, it still kind of puts you into the, due to the Randall cycle into this semi, semi-diabetic state because it decreases your insulin sensitivity. Um, so really sugar, pure sugar is, is what we are meant to oxidize for fuel. And if you get it from ripe fruit, great. If you get it from honey, if you can get it from honey, you know, probably just as good, if not even better. But if not, then just the pure white variety, uh, preferably organic that you get from the store, I think it's a very good source of the, you know, of most of the carb calories that, that you intend to eat throughout the day. Well, I'd have to throw in a major caution here about the honey, uh, primarily because a large amount of honey is made from high fructose corn yeah. syrup. Yeah, fake. So exactly. <laughs> I, I think you've got. I, I I've concluded that if it says it's raw honey, there's a high likelihood, especially if you buy it from a local producer, that it's going to be a, a real deal. So, I mean, what's been your experience with identifying authentic honey that's not adulterated or made from scratch from high fructose corn syrup? So I I taste a big difference and also sense of a, a large difference in the metabolic effects. Unfortunately, even the organic version. Not many people know, but there is no such thing apparently as organic honey. Uh, yeah, many yeah. many yeah. vendors will put it on the label, but I, I don't yeah. think the USDA recognizes it or has certified mm-hmm. any honey is organic. So you're paying a lot more, but you're getting potentially the same thing. Which now they've gotten to the point they're so so good at reverse engineering the foods that we're willing to pay a lot of money for that just like olive oil, they can give you canola oil that looks and tastes just like olive oil, but it's actually mostly poofa inside. I think they've gotten to, they've basically re-engineered that process for honey as well uh because when i eat the, the the refined variety which is sold in stores 
organic or not, I'm basically getting sort of like a lightheaded, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes get indigestion and whatnot. But if I go to the, there's a the, quite a few farms in the area outside of DC here in Maryland, Virginia, their farms and their beehives there. So you go and you buy the variety, which sometimes com- comes with the wax on it, right? Mm-hmm. That's part mm-hmm. of it. And when I eat that, I don't get the same, the same response. I just, you know, just feel good. Um, you know, if eating the same amount that they eat from the store variety. So something's going on with the industry produced foods that basically we're getting close to, uh, you know, it, nothing really can be trusted despite what it says on the label, that, which may be one, one reason why Dr. Pete said, if you're going to be getting any carbs from the store, it better be just the pure white sugar, the cane sugar, uh, you know, that, that, is, that is in the bags. Very little uh, outside of that is, is trustworthy. Well, the fruit and the produce department. Sure, yes. They, they, haven't, they haven't yet gotten to the 3D printing fruit yeah. yet. <laughs> I'm afraid it's yeah. coming. That's for sure. So uh, maybe we can just review one of the reasons to uh, support your statement that glucose is the ideal fuel to burn, because that was actually somewhat controversial, controversial too, and actually counter to what I had promoted in my book, Fat for Fuel. And I was confused because it's seen metabolically that fat would generate less free radical species uh, in the met- in the electron transport chain as opposed to sugar. Uh, but the problem is, is that, and this this is an, a more an additional support for the the safety of sugar and glucose, pure pure glucose. I mean, if you didn't have glucose, you would be dead. It is the pro- one of the primary fuels of your body. Your, your brain requires it. I don't care how much you keto. Yes, it can use ketones and it can use lactate as, as substitute fuels, but you still need glucose. So if your glucose levels are really low because you're on a low-carb diet, your body is going to make glucose. Yeah. And it's that stimulus to make glucose that is really part of the problem because one of the ways your body do is, is it, it secretes cortisol. And yes, cortisol is fine and great if you need it acutely. It'll save your life when you're running from a... Uh, an acute threat, but if it's elevated chronically, it's going to radically decrease your health because that's chronic inflammation, which is not good. It's totally different than acute inflammation, which is necessary and important and healthy. So you've got to have a certain amount of glucose and it's best if you're getting it from your diet rather than forcing your liver to make it by having glucose stimulate that the liver. Yeah, I completely, completely agree with that. Um, I mean, when I say it's the ideal, the only macronutrient that was meant to be oxidized is fuel is that if glucose is oxidized properly, going through glycolysis, then Krebs cycle, and the electron transport chain, it generates more more uh, uh, more carbon dioxide per, mo- per molecule of glucose oxidized than do fats. Now, carbon dioxide has this kind of also controversial role in medicine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be considered a metabolic byproduct that could potentially be dangerous. People with uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease have higher than normal uh, mm-hmm. levels mm-hmm. of carbon dioxide right. in the blood. But then medicine started to look into this more closely, I think, over the last 10 years, uh, outside of Dr. Pete's research and everybody else, and said, hmm, carbon dioxide seems to have a lot of positive effects in the body one of them one of which is the you know uh supporting vasodilation um so so basically if you don't produce in other words if your metabolism is not working properly if you're not oxidizing glucose properly you're, gonna, you're not going to produce sufficient amount of carbon dioxide but what happens then vasoconstriction and since that is actually a problem raises blood pressure and all kinds of other things or hell breaks loose then the body re- releases an emergency vasodilator not known as nitric oxide uh, and that is now acquiring a very bad reputation 
even in mainstream medical circles, they started seeing that people who are taking the drug nitroglycerin, which used to be, I think to these days, like the, the main uh, stream drug for angina, for chest pain, for people that have cardiovascular disease, for people who have blood pressure, um, you know, they, they will give them nitroglycerin. And of course, you will quickly lower blood pressure. But over time, the inflammatory nature of nitric oxide ensures that these people actually get worse. And in fact, most people who take nitroglycerin on a long-term basis die from a heart attack or ischemic stroke. Um, so if you're not uh, eating enough glucose, just as you said, the body will, will get it. And in fact, the primary evolutionary role of cortisol in the body, the acute role, is actually supplying, preventing blood glucose from dropping too low because you will go into a hyperglycemic coma. Uh, it's only afterwards in the longer run when cortisol actually, its secondary role is to actually dampen down inflammation. So really the acute, the, the life-saving role of cortisol on a daily basis is to prevent you from dropping into a coma because your blood glucose went too low. But we don't want that process because it's going to get the glucose from the tissues. So we need glucose. It definitely need glucose. That I think even like the ketogenic proponents are not getting to the point of they're saying, look, we cannot be always in ketosis. That's mm -hmm. just in the long term, it's not good. Um, the I think the the, the 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 reputation, the good reputation, the ketogenic diet acquired came from the studies with children with intractable epilepsy. But if you look at and several of the doctors that were doing these studies said, listen, these are we're doing this diet in a metabolic ward. These children are being monitored all the time. They're yes, they're getting into ketosis, but we only are doing this for two, three months. And until they start responding to the anti-epileptic medication. After that, we stop this diet. We don't recommend that this child should be on this diet forever. I think this, this kind of warning was lost when, when it got to the general public. And they said, oh, my God, if this can treat uh, untractable epilepsy, must be great. If it's, if it's good for the brain, it's good for the rest of the body. Not necessarily a bad analogy, but it turns out that if you're actually doing this on a regular basis, um, you're getting into this ketotic state. And people with diabetes, one of the defining states is that they're in a state of ketosis most of the time. Even They even sell these uh, test strips where you can test your urine for the presence of ketones. Uh, you can get it You can get into diabetic ketoacidosis. And all of these things are actually relievable uh, by giving the body a little bit of glucose. So unless you're completely... Uh, insulin insensitive. If you if you are in a diabetic ketosis and you get to the hospital, one of the first things they do is they put you on an IV drip of glucose. And for mm -hmm. most people, that resolves the issue. So I think that kind of is like a strong evidence that we shouldn't be pushing our body too much into the direction of uh, you know glucose deprivation and oxidizing primarily fats. Um, and uh, and if we have to get the glucose, just as we mentioned, ripe fruit, you know, honey, but mostly fake. So make sure you get it from the local farmer. Um, and if not, then you know, worst 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 case scenario is get the pure granulated uh, crystal form of the sugar that's from the local store. Yeah, but ideally, honey, raw honey. Yes, I do. Locally honey. produced would be better. You can actually even use raw honey locally if you have allergies because the, it can be a type of allergy desensitization because there's typically pollen that the bees collect from local trees or shrubs that uh, flowers, grasses that you might be sensitive to and, and small doses of that over time can desensitize you. So uh, I wanted to touch on the nitric oxide, which you mentioned, uh, generally thought of as to be helpful. And there's a lot of books. I know a few authors who promote that as a useful strategy to improve your health. But actually, nitric oxide is a free radical. And yes, we need some. But I'm wondering your take on the 
because your body has to have it. And, yeah. you know, the but excess of anything is going to be a challenge. This is certainly true for nitric oxide. But there are foods that are high in the precursors of nitric oxide. And one of my favorite foods is watermelon, which is high in citrulline, mm -hmm. uh, which your body, I don't recall a specific pathway, but it does in, allow your body to produce nitric oxide if you need it. So I'm wondering, are there any uh, parameters or cautions you have about taking precursors or... Uh, to increase nitric oxide and arginine would be another one i mean yeah arginine is the, the direct precursor citrulline go, gets salvaged through a backward pathway converted back to arginine and increases oh, so nitric it, oxide. Oh, okay so that's how citrulline works it increases yeah. the arginine levels okay. yeah so so bo both i wouldn't take as a supplement but i think you're safe because unless you're eating the watermelon rind most of the citrulline is in the rind it's not in the actual watermelon. oh interesting so the white part <laughs> yes exactly okay uh, my chick my chickens eat the rind they love it yeah they yeah. maybe i think they evolved they evolved to be to be okay with that but you can monitor actually if it's good for them if the if the eggs that they produce if you're getting eggs from them if the shell gets starting getting really thin and, and fragile that's usually an indication of increased inflammation in the chicken's body oh and, interesting yeah. you know my chicken shells are good but i was traveling recently in a foreign country and the shells there were extraordinary thing you just like look at the egg and it breaks and shatters you know so these these i'm sure they were capo chickens and yeah caged and in fact i i was in mexico and they i i i bought organic eggs and they only had white yolks white yolks wow. i've never wow. seen them before yeah means that whatever chicken is getting it's missing riboflavin and iron because these these are the two things that give the uh yolk mo most of the, it's it's bright orange color yeah yeah um and and i mean the the reason that this is a good surrogate the, the, the shell is that uh you know we know that when we're in chronic inflammation our bones get thin and brittle osteopenia and osteoporosis right but mm -hmm. we don't excrete anything with bone in it but the chickens mm -hmm. do so the so the chicken egg is actually kind of surrogate of what the chicken bone looks like um and then we know that during inflammation the chicken wants to keep its calcium for itself because it helps to dampen the inflammation uh and basically the expense of the egg the egg is considered something non-essential um uh, so yeah the nitric oxide is actually something that uh, since almost any protein we, is going to have some arginine in it um then uh, i don't think there is a need to actually take additional as a supplement um there were several clinical studies that uh, gave people arginine uh, to specifically to increase their their nitric oxide, uh, and I think there were several uh, serious adverse events, as they called SAR. Um, one person basically fainted, probably from the extreme hypotension that that the increase of nitric oxide caused. Uh, another person got a heart attack. Um, so you don't you probably don't want to supplement with something that sounds as benign as an amino acid. But it's causing these very serious problems in uh, highly trained people. Now, these people, I think, were bodybuilders, if I remember the study correctly. So they're doing a lot of other stuff. They're taking steroids. God knows what else they're injecting and taking. But still, they, you know, it's not a good sign when you see that these people are getting these serious adverse events from uh, two, three grams of arginine daily, additional to what they're already getting through the diet. Uh, so I don't think there's ever a danger of us becoming, you know, deficient in in nitric oxide. It's always there. The inducible nitrous oxide synthase is expressed everywhere and its primary the primary role of really of the nitric oxide is is a pathogen killer uh, that's when it's that, that that's when it's released in very large amounts to destroy any virus bacteria and whatnot in fact it was used as a uh, kind of like a, a antiviral therapy until they found that nitric oxide reactivates the herpes virus which is dormant lays dormant in the lymphatic system and the nervous system and it can cause the usually, uh, not usually, but about 40% case lethality of the so-called herpetic emphysitis. Uh, 
uh, really not a good thing. I mean, very, you know, it's a curb sounds benign, but it can actually kill you if you take in too much arginine. There have been cases published on that. Um, so, so no need to take it as a supplement is, is, is my position. You, you have plenty from the protein that you're eating on a daily basis. Yeah. I've learned that from clinically too, that a person has a herpes outbreak, the last thing you wanted to have them take is arginine. Yeah. Uh, but the counter to that would be lysine, of course, yes. which seems to help resolve the, her- the herpes at a, at a relatively high dose. So one of the other controversial areas with, especially with respect to glucose and carbohydrates would be the treatment of cancer. Uh, depending on your age group, I mean, cancer and heart disease are like the number one, number two. I think overall heart disease is leading, but in, in many age groups, cancer is number one. The number one cause of death is cancer. So the treatment for that, I'm, I'm sure everyone watching this is either had experiences with cancer themselves personally, or certainly a friend or loved one has had it. And if they're not, they're going to have it real soon because it's just pervasive. So understanding this, the overall metabolic strategies to address that would be very helpful, very helpful. And I thought I had a good handle on it uh, because I was so uh, embracing keto and Dr. Tom Seyfried, who's a uh, professor of biology at Boston College. I've interviewed him a few times. He, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He's not too far from you. He wrote the book, Metabolic treatment of cancer uh, and actually wrote a paper on that, uh, many papers, but that was a, sort of the summary paper that you can get for free online with the PDF. Uh, but his theory is to keep a low carbohydrate diet and also low glutamine, which is another fuel that the cancers use. And it's all based on Warburg's work uh, uh, with respect to glucose is the primary fuel for cancer. And, you know, they, they're primarily using glycolysis. Mm-hmm. So when you restrict the fuel, you're going to really sabotage or abort many of their strategies for reproducing. So, you know, this high car, higher pure carbohydrate sugar, like, like honey and fruits and sugar, and even raw non non high fructose corn syrup sugar seems counter to that. So I'm wondering if you can walk through the arguments that oppose that. And then and then also I want to dive into some of the strategies you think almost all of us should be applying to prevent cancer because but no one's going to argue that prevention is the best way to treat cancer. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I think it's wise and it's a strategy I personally adopt is to treat myself as if I had a, a stage four cancer. And that's how I live my life. I mean that's the 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 diet I'm adopting, that's the lifestyle I'm strategizing for, because th- this is the most effective way to treat cancer before you get it. I agree. Um, I think the some of the some of the ideas that uh, that are around the evil glucose feeding mm-hmm. cancer uh, stem from two basic misunderstandings. One is that cancer is an evil cell, genetically mutated, and then the only your only chance once you get it is to kill all of those cells in the body mm-hmm. because they're not going to go away by themselves. First of all, that's not true. Spontaneous remissions of cancer are known. They've been published in the literature, uh, and they vary depending on the cancer. I think prostate cancer has a pretty high rate of spontaneous spontaneous remission. It's a very slow developing cancer, unless you have the very aggressive version, but about 30% of the cases, prostate cancer resolve by themselves. 
there's no need for treatment. And that's one reason why doctors are now saying, if you have prostate cancer, unless it's the high-grade aggressive one, we recommend watchful waiting. So is it, they're going to watch it as if it's going to do something spectacular. <laughs> but they're going <laughs> to give you the blood test for PSA. They're going to send you for ultrasound. And unless it's unless it's growing or pressing on a, you know, preventing you from urinating or doing something that's really interfering with your life, they're going to let it stay there, right? So, 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 uh, so again, the basic premise is ca- cancer is a mutated evil cell. You're, you're, the only chance of survival is killing. Well, this is a this is this is the very old idea, but now over the last I would say twenty years, and culminating in a paper that came about five years and made a huge storm of discussion on Reddit. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, a, a very famous I think it's the Cancer Center Anderson in Texas is mm-hmm. the one MD. MD uh, Anderson. Yeah, the one that published it said. Uh, it's always been the position of medicine is that basically the it's the mutations that happen, cancerous mutations, and after that, basically the the, the cell becomes metabolically deranged. We, it looks like we've had it backwards. It's the metabolic derangement that happens first, and over time, this actually triggers the genetic mutations because the cell, being in an energetic deficiency, it cannot properly maintain its structure. So that was a huge admission. Caused the you know storm uh, of like a you know of, of discussions and arguing on Reddit, but overall the 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 some of the doc some other doctors chime in and they said, yeah, it looks like you know it's a good theory, but it's backwards. So what we need to be doing here is not trying to kill the cancer cell because it is not a cancer cell. It is actually a normal cell that is metabolically extremely deranged. And if we could compare it to anything, it would be a, a basically a diabetic cell, which means diabetes is now known to actually be caused by excessive by hyperlipemia. Too much fat in the body, too much fat in the blood, and basically the cells are getting, due to the Randall cycle, they're basically stuck in oxidizing fats, and then the glucose that's floating around in diabetes, a good portion of it, because it cannot be metabolized, you're either peeing it through the urine, established as for diabetes, right? Or you're converting a good portion of it into lactic acid, because the body cannot properly metabolize it. And this paper said the exact same thing is happening in cancer. We're seeing an, ab- an abnormal rate of fatty acid oxidation. And because the, the cell is stuck into the cycle due to oversupply of fat, actually, uh, which is established in cancer patients already, then this glucose that's floating around the body, can, uh, the cell, the cancer cell, quote unquote, cannot actually metabolize it. So, uh, but because the cell needs its glucose for a variety of purposes, not just synthesizing energy, but synthesizing DNA and RNA, and I think those two units uh, you know, for cellular repair and growth of the tissue can only be synthesized from glucose, not from fats. So the body, the cancer cell says, oh, I'm in a state of extreme deficiency of glucose. Give me more. So it increases the synthesis of these glucose transporters known as GLUT1 through 4. And basically, that's why when you give the body, a, a patient with cancer, if you give them a little bit of radioactive sugar, it accumulates mostly into the tumor because the tumor has a much higher capacity for uptake of sugar. However, in a key point, key difference here has a much uh, has a much lower capacity for oxidizing that sugar. So you're going to see a lot of uh, radioactive sugar accumulation in the tumor, but most of it will get converted to lactic acid. So mm. this paper that came out said we need to do something that gets the cell out of its stressed state, and we I think we already agreed that excessive oxidation of fat is sort of a stress state, right? We don't want to produce lactic acid. And as long as we're over-oxidizing fats, we will be producing the lactic acid and we will be uptaking more glucose. So the these, these study, uh, the doctor said, okay, what can we do? Well, several studies have come out since then, one of them here at NIH. 
And I said, okay, how can we restrict the supply of fat? Assuming the fat is the problem. Uh, there's only really two mac macronutrients that can go to the cell. Assuming cancer is a metabolic disease and assuming a, a cell can only oxidize fat or sugar, then if it's not the sugar, it's got to be the fat. There's nothing else, right? And if it's not mm -hmm. the mutations, if the mutations are secondary to the metabolic arrangement, it's got to be one of these two macronutrients that we can manipulate to actually try to, to, to cure the cancer. They already tried glucose restriction. In fact, there is even a molecule that I think is called 2-deoxyglucose that mm -hmm. is very similar right. structurally to glucose, but it takes its place. So the cancer accumulates that And, and basically they said, okay, and, and creates sort of like this even more glucose deprivation than mm -hmm. what a normal cancer cell does. That did not cure cancer. It, it, it did have a sensitizing effect to chemotherapy is what they're mm -hmm. calling it, but it did not result in actual cancer remission. So now we're back to the other micronutrient, uh, restricting the supply of fat. Multiple studies already. It's not one, not five, not even 10. It's more than that. I have, I have at least 30 on my blog and even more so on the other forum. have shown that restricting lipolysis by administering beta blockers, very, very commonly used drug. Uh, I think it's called propranolol. Uh, it's yeah. the first beta blocker, right? Exactly. The first beta blocker. is a brand name. Exactly. Exactly. So very, very, very widely used drug for blood pressure, but the way it lowers blood pressure is by blocking adrenaline. If you're blocking adrenaline, you're also lowering lipolysis because adrenaline is the primary activator of the hormone-sensitive lipase enzyme. And basically, you're going to be restricting the supply of fat from your own mm -hmm. tissues to the tumor. Uh, then what else can be done? Well, that's not the only uh, you know source of fat. You're also getting it through the diet, right? Other studies have tried doing low-fat diets for cancer and are getting actually good results. Not not cure, but good results. The propranolol induced full remission in the cancer. Um, wow. Another study used a, a, a beta oxidation inhibitor known as etomoxir used for heart disease. Mm -hmm. um, and basically that also induced full remission in neuroglioblastoma, which is essentially incurable. John McCain, Senator McCain, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, I think both died from that cancer. Mm -hmm. It's got a very, very poor prognosis. I think it's basically not, maybe 20% survive after the, after the five years. Um, so these studies showed, okay, either restricting the supply of fat or blocking the actual oxidation of fat inside of the cell has very strong therapeutic effect against cancer. Um, and then subsequent studies afterwards basically used variations because there are multiple drugs that do, they have anti-lipolytic or uh, anti-beta oxidation effect, the process of oxidating fat. All of them have confirmed these findings. So uh, I think the, a very recent study used the drug meldonium, which is now a doping drug. I don't know why they, uh, they, they declare it like that, but um, uh, it's, it's used by athletes because it increases uh, uh, your exercise capacity. How does it do that? It basically restricts the transport of fats, long-chain fatty acids, into the mitochondria by depleting your body stores of L-carnitine, the amino acid L-carnitine. But the overall effect is still the same. It's basically forcing the, uh, at least giving the the cell the ability to get out of this excessive fatty acid oxidation state. And as soon as you do that, there's no metabolic damage that's preventing the cell from oxidizing glucose. It's all functional. If you flood the, the The, the, the cell with fat, then basically that's what the fat will, uh, that's what the cell will oxidize because it's it's relatively overabundant relative to the glucose that is that is getting to the cell. So if you stop that process or at least straight, greatly restrict it, the cell starts oxidizing glucose again. And there are even older studies showing that direct injection of glucose into the tumors in many cases completely cured them. Uh, 
yeah, only 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 animal studies. That I don't think they've been done in with humans, but we have a decent amount of evidence that the, the cancer is essentially an extreme form of diabetes, if you call it diabetes type zero. Mm-hmm. Um, but the very end stages of cancer and, and an untreated type two, type one diabetes are actually identical. Diabetic people get into extreme form of cachexia. Basically, it's a wasting mm-hmm. disease. And until the discovery of insulin, uh, people with type one diabetes will invariably die. Uh, and mm-hmm. they died from a wasting. Basically, they they shrivel and they look like a, you know like a parchment. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what a person with a, with a very advanced stage of cancer usually look like looks like. And now we know that the drivers of cachexia are excessive cortisol because it shreds your uh, you know uh, tissue to provide the glucose that the cancer so thinks it's not getting, um, and also the adrenaline and the excessive lipolysis, which. If most of it is PUFA, because we already discussed that we're preferentially storing the PUFA, when you're flooding the body t- constantly from your fat stores with PUFA or from the diet, you're creating a very strong inflammatory reaction, and that itself has a wasting effect on the body. So again, strong evidence that of the two macronutrients, it's the fats, especially the polyunsaturated ones, that are actually uh, you know the preferred fuel of cancer. And then it's the glucose that the cancer accumulates because it senses metabolically that it's not getting enough of it because it's not processing it properly. Um, wow. So, yeah. So, if we should be the way we should be treating dietary cancer, at least preventing it, is that make sure that you're not in an over excessive state of fat, uh, fatty acid oxidation. There's always some going on, especially by the muscles at rest. Um, and then supplying sufficient amount of glucose. Do not restrict glucose because, as we said, the body will, will get it in a bad way, right? But mm-hmm. also because you're contributing to that state. If there's any cell that's, let's say, cancer stage zero, uh, in situ, slightly uh, hyperplastic cell, as they call it, not yet hyperproliferating, you may be getting the cell pushing it, nudging it towards the state where it's going to say, uh, okay, I'm not getting enough glucose. I'm going to start sending signals such as increased cortisol, right? Increased adrenaline. Give me more glucose, and it's ed- actually become cancer. Okay, that's that's a really helpful explanation. Thank you for sharing that. So, uh, in an effort to adopt this, I'd like to share a personal story. Uh, I've been convinced that the evidence that you've been presenting and Ray Pete has written about for decades now that the carbohydrates are necessary and important. So, I've increased my carbohydrate intake to about. 200, maybe 250 grams, depending on the day and the fruit availability. But what I noticed, I just got my black blood work back last week and my triglycerides were high. They were in triple digits, low triple digits, like just over hundred, which is abnormal. Typically it's closer to 50. And in my clinical experience, that's almost, it, it, I, I think I understand what the answer is, but I wanted you to confirm it. It's almost always related to excessive carbohydrate intake, which yeah. sort of conflicts what you're just saying. But I think it's it, it, the deeper explanation is that if you're going to increase carbohydrates, you have to lower fat. Yes. If you're not lowering the fat, then you're going to have a complication. And, and, and so I di- I lowered it, but I didn't. I don't think I lowered it enough. So maybe you can discuss the macronutrient ratios. And it, it, is it true that if you have too much fat with that increase in carbohydrates, you're going to run into problems. Oh, absolutely. In fact, most of the animal studies that we've seen say like, hey, high sugar diet causes this, high sugar diet causes that. If you look at their diets, these people, these animals are are already on a high fat diet. All Mm -hmm. they did was add more sugar on top of it. Well, Mm -hmm. of course, in a situation like that, you're going to have increase in the triglycerides, increase in LDL. Uh, cholesterol because the body can synthesize cholesterol from the sugars, right? Um, so you're gonna you're going to get these biomarkers that are associated with cardiovascular disease to increase, mm-hmm. but it's actually not a not really a fair comparison. What you should be doing is keeping the the diets isocaloric, right, be, mm-hmm. uh, the same, and also not increase the total amount of calories. Just replace that some of that fat with sugar. 
Uh, and when you do that, um, I think that's uh, th- that was the rat study that I mentioned that they gave him free access to coke. So they basically they actually allowed him to increase the coke intake at the expense of fat. These rats did not gain weight, but they eating they were eating eight times more calories than before. Um, another thing that that uh, is probably important is that since there is always some baseline lipolysis going, and when you're increasing the the the, the carbohydrate intake. Uh, the excess that cannot get metabolized, of course, will get converted to triglycerides and then stored. Um, when you're increasing the carbohydrate intake, you should be decreasing the amount of fat. And if you're not, then at least you should be taking something that stimulates the oxidation of carbohydrate so it doesn't result in the raising of triglycerides. Aspirin, caffeine, especially vitamin B9, B3 niacinamide, all of these are actually known to lower triglycerides. And by now, the the uh, the consensus, which is a bad word, but the consensus mechanism of action is that all three of these components are increasing the oxidation of carbohydrates. Um, so that we might take if you're if you're increasing the carbohydrates and you're getting increase of triglycerides, two things: either you're eating too much fat or your baseline metabolic rate is probably not where it should be. So you can use you know you can get you can use some metabolic stimulation from these substances. Okay, I wanted to go into some of the supplements too, and you mentioned the ones I wanted to, some of the ones I wanted to discuss. But in addition to help increasing the ability to oxidize glucose as a fuel, uh, they, I, I believe they have two roles. That's one. And the other role is they can inhibit the oxidation of fatty acids, specifically yeah. linoleic acid, because clearly yeah. the most foundational strategy I think that anyone could implement for improving their health is to lower your linoleic acid, the omega-6 intake. And I also want to talk a little bit about the omega-3 because that's another controversial, but let's, let's just stick with the supplements since that's what I started with. So you've got the aspirin. Does that... Mm-hmm. We'll take them one by one. Does that also in decrease the oxidation of of the fats? And yes, and in addition to increasing the oxidation of glucose, glucose. so it lowers inflammation, which of course is great, right? We already know chronic inflammation is a is very bad for long term health. Uh, but lowering inflammation will also lower baseline cortisol, and we know that cortisol interferes with the met- metabolism of glucose. The side effects of cortisol, whether you take it as a sub- as a drug or it high endogenous, they're listed there. Go and look at it. It's basically obesity, diabetes, heart disease, dementia, osteoporosis, etc. So by lowering inflammation, you, you will be lowering your probably your baseline levels of cortisol. In addition, aspirin or it, it's actually it's metabolized salicylic acid mm-hmm. has an inhibitory effect on the enzyme eleta beta. Uh, 11 beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type one, very long name for it, for, but it's basically the enzyme that synthesizes the active hormone cortisol from the inactive precursor cortisone. Um, so, so aspirin will actually lower your synthesis of cortisol directly, not just by lowering inflammation, but also lowering the actual synthesis of cortisol. And there's this famous human study, uh, giving diabetic. And, and morbidly obese people, the the uh, human dosage of 90, 90 milligrams per kilogram daily of aspirin. And considering these people weight more than 100 kilos each, that's about 10 grams of aspirin daily each. That's a massive dose to most people. Now, it used to be kind of like a, you know, commonly used dosage for things like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, yeah. lupus, etc. Yeah, high dose, you can get ringing in your ears, tinnitus. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it can cause it can cause some some problems with the ears. But that was the that was the that was the only available treatment back in the day for chronic inflammatory diseases, and people didn't balk at this at such dosages. Now it's you, you talk about anything more than a tablet of aspirin, your doctor will kill you. Say, oh, you, you want to bleed to death or what? Um, anyway, so the aspirin lowers the synthesis of cortisol, and it has been shown 
that aspirin is actually capable of decreasing the oxidation of long chain fatty acids mm-hmm. by up to 60% when it when it's in the body in a concentration of about 1 millimole per liter which is achievable in humans with a single dose of about 2 to 3 grams of aspirin so you actually oh, decrease that high. Yeah, that, that that's high. a lot of aspirin still but you also don't need that much of a decrease of the fatty acid oxidation, six six zero yeah. percent A very recent study demonstrated that a much tinier dosage, the baby aspirin, 81 to 100 milligrams daily, mm-hmm. decreased fatty acid oxidation by about 30%. So I think wow. that's a very that's good effect from a very tiny dose. Yeah. Yeah. And of almost course, if you- Almost the same dose as niacinamide, actually. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so aspirin does it through different- Oh, aspirin also has an anti-lipolytic effect. Not as strong as, as niacinamide, but it's got these three different things that are basically helping to lower both the supply of fat to the cell and excessive oxidation of fats, even at these tiny dosages. Um, and, and due to the Randall cycle, assuming there is no other da- damage to the cell, which so far no study has managed to find any actual structural damage to, to a diabetic or cancer cell or whatnot, as soon as you restrict the excessive oxidation of fat, the cell says, okay, I can I can deal with glucose. Give me some glucose. Um, and then metabolism recovers. Uh, the oxidation of glucose recovers. And usually over time, uh, very serious diseases can resolve. Fibrotic diseases, which were considered irreversible up until recently. Um, um, if you look at the studies on aspirin, they're showing complete reversal of cirrhosis, of heart fibrosis, of lung fibrosis, etc. cetera. Um, so all of these, uh, even though that, that they were already established, so, so the, the, the thinking is, if, even if inflammation caused them, inflammation is no longer a factor because it's already established fibrotic tissue, which cannot resolve. Well, if the aspirin managed to reverse it, there's something going on metabolic at the aspirin that is allowing for this change to happen. And the related studies are saying it's the the improved oxidation of glucose that is allowing the body to actually process this fibrotic tissue and either you know uh, get rid of it through macrophages or actually convert it back into a normal healthy um, uh, metabolic tissue, which is the best. That's yeah. the best. Yeah. Normal, normalize it. So you mentioned earlier salicylic acid. So aspirin, for those who don't know, is acetyl salicylic acid. So is aspirin the preferred route, or would a salicylic acid be just as good? So the most of metabolic effects are coming from salicylic acid, the acetyl group uh, on aspirin, uh, which by the way was only created so it can be patented. When uh, mm-hmm. I think Bayer was the company that when, when it saw the amazing effect that salicylic acid has on all these conditions, they said, well, we want to sell it, but we can't sell salicylic acid because nobody's going to pay a lot of money for that. Well, yeah, let's yeah, convert yeah. it to acetyl salicylic acid and call it aspirin. And that's all oh, it is. Oh, gee. So, yeah. so is your preferred uh, recommendation for this intervention salicylic acid then? For people who are taking it for things like if they have fever, uh, it looks like the acetyl group is very important uh, for mm-hmm. basically dampening the fever. But for the overall metabolic effects, uh, equally good either either salicyl- either aspirin or salicylic acid, which can be bought either as powder or you can get it from willow bark. Uh, and in fact, that's how the uh, ancient Egyptians, sure. that's how they first sure. got in touch with aspirin. I mean, with salicylic acid, they were eating willow bark by sowing that the goats that they were pasturing, when the goats had an inflammatory problem, they would go and eat the bark of the willow because it's very high in salicylic acid. So I want to stick with aspirin for a bit because it's, it's somewhat controversial. And I was reading some of Ray's work on this. And it seems like there was a strong effort, a big surprise from pharma to discredit aspirin. Why? Because it was a direct 
competition to those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories yes, that they were exactly. introduced, which were high profit and aspirin is dirt yeah. cheap. So uh, I'm sure you're aware of that. Maybe you can enlighten us further as to this. Is this true that there was this a discrediting campaign? And it kind of started, it all started when they, they came out with the NSAIDs. Motrin, of course, and or ibuprofen being the first one. Exactly. So ibuprofen and naproxen sodium, I think, are like the two most famous ones mm-hmm. that are currently being sold. They were synthesized specifically to compete with aspirin mm-hmm. uh, because the company said, well, we can't allow Bayer to sell this basically natural drug for an obscene amount of profit. Let's, uh, let's see what it does, and let's create something in the lab synthetically that has the same effects. So... The reductionist approach at the time uh, led these doctors to look at aspirin and say, oh, it's just a COX inhibitor, right? The mm-hmm. cyclooxygenase. And in fact, uh, it's a non-selective one. So let us come up with a very selective, because the COX enzyme has two units, one and two. Let's come up with more selective uh, COX inhibitors, and we're going to sell them as better drugs, as the modern aspirin. It's the, <laughs> they'll be much more potent and selective, which pharmacy loves, because one bullet, uh, what is it? One disease, one drug, right? One, one problem, one bullet. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't work like this in real life, but they created these drugs and they started marketing them and the, it basically took off and pe- people started taking them until I think it was in the 80s when they started seeing that people who are taking long-term ibuprofen or, or naproxen uh, were having much higher rates of, of cardiovascular disease. In fact, sudden cardiac arrest was very common in these people. So now if you actually go to the store and you buy ibuprofen or naproxen sodium, there's a warning. I think FDA started putting warnings on the label saying that, you know, talk to your doctor about long-term usage because, you know, in higher doses than what you're going to find in this in this, in this this uh, box, right, in this in this bottle, they may, they, you know, these drugs may cause heart issues. And pharma industry got spooked. It tried to do these long-term observational trials to prove that aspirin also has the same risk. It did not. No study so far has demonstrated that aspirin has the same risks, cardiovascular risks, that these NSAIDs do. And all of them, the ones that are currently sold on the market, I think all of them do, but at least the two most popular ones. Um, In addition, uh, these drugs, I think they already proved for ibuprofen and I think naproxen, they tend to have an anti-androgenic effect in males. Now, uh, they may not sound like much, but now we know that the chronic decline in androgens in males is actually related to things like beyond the obvious ones, such as frailty or low muscle mass. But as we mentioned earlier, it's uh, fat-free muscle mass that is a very good indicator of health, right? It's the it's the hand grip strength, hand grip strength, very good indicator of health. If you lower androgens in males, both of these are going to be negatively affected. So ergo, you one could conclude that taking these NSAIDs outside of aspirin actually has a long-term detrimental effect on the body, at least in males. Uh, but the same thing, the cardiovascular effects have been have been uh, seen in females. Conversely, for aspirin, uh, for a long time, and I think to this day, actually used to be the, the standard recommendation for preventing cardiovascular disease. But now, because of the fear-mongering about its bleeding risks and whatnot, I think now FDA is, is basically is recommending against primary prevention. In other words, they're saying, well, you can talk to your doctor about potentially taking aspirin for preventing heart attacks, but uh, we don't think the, the benefits outweigh the risks. So they're not banning it outright, but the, the, they've retracted their previous recommendation, which was if you're over 40, I think it was over 50. If you're over 50, regardless of your uh, risk factors or, or, or history of heart disease in the family, uh, taking a baby aspirin is likely to reduce your risk of, heart, of, of future heart attack. Now they've retracted that. They're saying, uh, now we think the, the risks outweigh the benefits, but if you want to talk to your doctor and take aspirin, please do. 
There is no such benefit ever established for the NSAIDs. In fact, it's the exact opposite. NSAIDs are known outside of aspirin to increase the risk of, of, heart, of heart attacks and also heart failure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, aspirin is unique in that respect. Yeah, that reminds me, one of the first stories I wrote, I started my website in 1997, which is a long time ago, but one of the first big stories we broke was on Vioxx, which mm-hmm. was a drug, it's an NSAID by, by, uh, produced by Merck. And we, I wrote a story about it in 2000. This was before it was on the market because it's the studies were showing that it radically increased the risk of stroke and heart disease and wound up, they launched it despite of those studies and, and killed 60,000 people died directly as a result of this. And, uh, Merck was caught red-handed and they they found that due to uh, FOIA requests and the depositions, they found that they knew this before they launched the product. And they were they were suspected at the time to go out of business because those lawsuits were like 20, 30 billion dollars. Well, they wound up only set, settling for a few billion. Of course, you know, the lawyers figured it out for them and uh, they continued today. Uh, a bit of a peripheral. Do you know why this drug killed all these people? Like what was actually behind it? The structure. Vioxx? Yeah, Vioxx? Vioxx is structurally a, a, a so-called still bean, uh, very closely oh, okay. related to the natural, that. yeah, to the natural molecule resveratrol, which is now also oh. all over the news. So you're not a fan of resveratrol either? No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I'm no surprise. Yeah, it's no estrogenic. Surprise. It's basically a natural estrogen. Yeah. It's a phytoestrogen, and Vioxx yeah. is, is a very potent synthetic version of that. So estrogen is known to actually cause heart attacks because uh, uh, it clots the blood, yeah. but it's got other problems as well. So think of Vioxx as taking an extremely potent form of an estrogen and not not, not surprising that it causes all these wow. cardiac events. Yeah. Now, does, does aspirin inhibit estrogen too? Yes, does of it course. Detect? It inhibits the aromatase, which is it, which is stimulated so, by the prostaglandins coming from linoleic acid. Yeah. Oh, jeez. It's just, I mean, it, it's, it's you, you just provide a very compelling ag- argument to have many people consider it as a regular supplement, maybe not aspirin, uh, because a lot of times it's combined with uh, uh, other additives in the in yeah. the pill that are not that good for you. But you can get a willabark extract and get the salicylic acid and probably get similar, if not the same benefits. So it's a pretty potent uh CVS potent used story. to sell, sell pretty pretty nice aspirin, though the only additive was cornstarch. Uh, oh, we is- love cornstarch. <laughs> <laughs> but it was pretty benign compared to what they have now. So yeah, something yeah. happened just before the pandemic, uh, and we both know <laughs> what kind of you know uh, fake story that was. But anyway, so the CVS removed all of the so-called uh, uh, immediate release aspirin, which is just wow. aspirin mixed with a little bit of cornstarch. Sure. And now they only have the extended release, which has like wow. various iron salts, uh, various like things like talc, uh, uh, yeah. titanium dioxide uh, right. lawsuits about this all over the place stearate. Sure. yeah exactly uh, and, and, and on top of that also studies found that if you take the extended release aspirin you're actually at a higher risk of bleeding than if you take the immediate release and oh. now they can only get the immediate release from by, uh, from the internet and even there there's a shortage Amazon is now I think out of the geriatric I think it's the brand name but it's basically mm-hmm. the immediate release aspirin and cornstarch the only thing that's left for most consumers, if they go to the local store, will be the coated aspirin that basically is... Uh, Which you don't want. You don't, you don't want, want it. No, absolutely you do not, not want that. That makes perfect sense. But yeah, thank you for expanding on that because like most things, the devil's in the details. And and if you don't understand that, you're going to make a, what you think is ostensibly a good choice, but it, it's going to have uh, unintended consequences. So that's great. Uh, so let's get some of the other supplements like vitamin E. I think we talked about this last time is also pretty similar with respect to its ability to inhibit lipolysis, I believe. Uh, 
and maybe you can expand it. Does it have any impact on improving the metabolism of cortisol? Oh, not cortisol, of uh, glucose. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, mostly through its anti-lipolytic effect, but also because it's an estrogen antagonist. Uh, the early, <laughs> the, the way vitamin E so was metabolized, it, it's day, not an aromatase inhibitor. Is it, it, it is. It is actually. And it's and okay. it's also an estrogen receptor antagonist directly at the receptor. Oh, jeez. you got to be crazy <laughs> not to take vitamin E. I, I agree with that statement. I I, I think everybody can can have a can can use a little bit if assuming it's a good product. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's good. Let's go on this like you did with the aspirin because uh, it's important. And I think the parameters were that most of it, the vitamin E, should for should be a combination product. Should have some tocotrienols. It should have the different uh, uh, isomers yeah, of yeah. tocopherol, but alpha being the most important. So maybe half of the the tocopherol should be alpha, and then you could have the beta, gamma, deltas. Right? Yeah, so the pharma companies managed to bastardize even vitamin E because they saw how successful <laughs> it was, <laughs> and they said, we can do better. So they synthesized alpha tocopherol acetate. In, in fact, they I, used the both. Is uh, most, does most, most of vitamin E comes from Roche, doesn't it? Yeah. Roche? Yeah. Roche, yeah. Uh, they they either extract it now. Like if you get a synthetic vitamin E, but if you get an allergic vitamin E from from the pill in the store, most likely it's actually a mix of L and D isomers, with the mm -hmm. L one being inactive. So they yeah. they're giving you racemic vitamin E, and mm -hmm. on top of that, it's an actual ester. So it only has about fifty percent of the of the activity of the real one. And if you divide that by two, because one of the isomers is inactive, you're getting about twenty five percent of the activity of what real vitamin E should be getting. If you're getting the the synthetic one, but anyways, back in the in the early twentieth century, and the reason vitamin E is called tocopherol, that's the the name, mm -hmm. tocopherol, is it means pregnancy promoting. So it was known <laughs> as a fertility actually factor in both males and females. Uh, and it was known that deficiency of vitamin E causes infertility in both males and females. So if there was any problem with a couple having a problem to conceive, they will give them a little bit of wheat germ oil, which is very rich in, 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 the, in the old isomers, unfortunately also very high on PUFA, but mm -hmm. they thought for a one or two dosages, the benefits outweigh the risks. Only mm -hmm. later they managed to start extracting just the tocopherols mm -hmm. and basically get rid of the of the PUFA. Uh, so tocopherol, so fertility promoting vitamin. Well, what causes infertility? We know estrogen does, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, you know, if you, you know, most of the birth control pills on the market are a combination. Used to be also only pure estrogen, usually ethanol, estradiol. Now they're doing combination progestin and estrogen. But long story short, if you give enough estrogen, the female cannot get pregnant. Now they also know they also know that estrogen is an anti-fertility factor in males. Um, mm -hmm. You know the people with too high of an expression of aromatase. There are some some genetic conditions like that. The males cannot beget children. Uh, conversely, if you give these people an aromatase inhibitor, then they become fertile again and they can beget children. So vitamin E from very early on was noticed that it can actually uh, cure or prevent many of the issues associated with estrogen, and also miraculously. Uh, was able to prevent most of the damage done done by PUFA. And in parallel, these researchers noticed that estrogen and PUFA have some remarkable parallels in terms of their metabolic and sort of like health effect, anti-health effects. Um, both, of course, one of them is a fat. Both of them increased lipolysis and increased the oxidation of fats. Uh, both of them basically promoted the effects of estrogen in the body, one of them being, you know, pure estrogen. But the PUFA actually, uh, by giving the animals PUFA, you increase their endogenous production of estrogen. And the 
little estrogen that they produced synergized with the PUFA and it became much stronger in terms of its overall effects. Vitamin E was able to antagonize both of these effects for both of these nutrients. But the researchers noted that estrogen and PUFA, even though they, they look structurally a little bit different, actually, they're both lipids, technically speaking. They're actually kind of like the same component. If you're taking and if you don't believe that estrogen is good, then you you can't believe that PUFA is good is good either. Um, so, anyways, vitamin E was was starting to get studied a lot more extensively until the 1950s. They noticed that it has an anti-lipolytic effect, and in fact, it was used in very high doses by the Shute brothers in Canada. They're very famous naturopathic doctors. In doses of five to six grams daily, it was known to induce remission in very severe cases of type 2 diabetes. They also used it as treatment and prevention of heart disease, and they noted it's very uh, very similar effects to aspirin, right? Um, and then they said, okay, so we know aspirin is anti-inflammatory. We know it's a COX inhibitor. Tocopherols have already proven to be as well. Uh, aspirin is also a LOX inhibitor, the other pathway of metabolizing PUFA, vitamin E is also. And by vitamin E, I mean all the four isomers of the tocopherols, right? Um, we know that basically uh, aspirin is anti-lipolytic. It reduces lipolysis. Vitamin E does so as well. Uh, we know that aspirin is a pre- it prevents the, ac- the activation of aromatase by the prostaglandins. Well, actually, vitamin E is a little bit stronger. It directly inhibits the activity of aromatase. And then a, a recent study uh, showed that vitamin E, because of its structure, it's got a phenol ring and a hydroxyl group, can actually can bind to the estrogen receptor alpha and act there as an antagonist. So it's similar mm-hmm. to the drugs, anti-estrogenic drugs, clomiphene, tamoxifene mm-hmm. that are used Boxing. for breast cancer. Yeah. yeah. In fact, several studies from the same group said, why are we bothering with clomiphene and tamoxifene considering they're actually they're synthetic estrogens? They're only partially anti-estrogenic, but they have estrogenic effects in other, in other parts of the body. We mm-hmm. should be using vitamin E. And I fully agree with that statement. So remarkable parallel, you know, vitamin E with aspirin and all the effects that it has. But in some respects, especially the opposition of estrogen and opposition of the effects of PUFA, I think vitamin E is stronger. Yeah. Yeah. So you make a very strong argument to, to take it as a supplement. But you've got, again, just like the aspirin, you've got to be really careful on which one you choose because a lot of the vitamin E in the market is garbage. As you mentioned, there's the racemic version. So you just want the D version. That's the only biologically active isomer. And then you want to have the right dosage. Not the doses that shoot we're using for these pathologic conditions yeah. at eight or nine grams. You're probably looking at like a hundred milligrams or units, yeah. which is yeah. pretty similar, right? And and then with like maybe 50 milligrams total of the tocotrienols. Yeah. So you need a relatively low dose. Otherwise, it's gonna it's not gonna work as effectively. Yeah, one of the recent studies show that your needs for vitamin E can be directly calculated by your PUFA intake. So you oh, need about interesting. Yeah, you need about two milligrams of vitamin E from all sources, like all to isomers can do it. Two milligrams of vitamin E per gram of PUFA eaten. So if you're eating fifty grams of PUFA daily, you need about hundred milligrams of uh, of of. of if you're eating fifty grams of PUFA, you're in serious <laughs> problems. In serious problems. Yes, that's ten yeah. times higher than it should be. Yeah. But oh. unfortunately, most people, that's their daily norm for the diet. If you're eating commercial food, especially these buffets, uh, guess what? They're only cooking with soybean and canola oil and safflower oh, yeah. oil. It's the cheapest stuff they can get. Oh, man. Soy, soybean, I think it's soybean is and canola are the two, yeah. number one and number two used yeah. PUFAs and, and for the seed oils, actually. And unfortunately, the highest in PUFA. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. It's just, it's just crazy. So, um, All right. I, I wanted to discuss some of the doses, but I, I want to divert into PUFAs 
Okay. Uh, because there's just no question. No one's going to argue, at least in our community, that the, the Omega-6 needs to be essentially limited. I think we discussed previously the strong arguments that it's really not even an essential fatty acid because there, you could, there's nine generations of animals that have been studied without essentially a no PUFA diet uh, and did just fine and had no signs of essential fatty acid deficiency because it's usually the other micronutrients that are deficient that you get. And if you supplement them back in, they're not going to have those symptoms. They're yeah. usually skin symptoms. If anybody's not convinced about PUFA, I recommend Googling the Israel paradox, and then you can add PUFA as a keyword. Well, search engine. We don't want to promote Google in any way. Oh, shape sorry. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> you would know that. Yeah, any so search engine would salt. What was the name of it again? The Israel paradox. It's about the, the Israel, Israel paradox, okay. which has the highest consumption of PUFA per capita in the world, and also has the highest rate of cancer. Of wow, of, uh, yeah, did in, not in, know in, that in developed country. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and uh, you can argue any way you want, but it's, it's attracted already attention. And basically, the reason it attracted attention is that PUFA used to be promoted as a you know cardiovascular, healthy food, right? It lowers your cholesterol, whatnot. And now they're saying, uh, no, it looks like it's the, it, let's the let's assume opposite. that it helps for cardiovascular disease, but it certainly does not help for cancer, right? But now yeah. we know that cardiovascular disease and cancer go hand in hand. So if PUFA is promoting cancer, chances are it's probably not good for your cardiovascular and diabetes well. too. And, and diabetes, diabetes too. Yeah. yeah. So the the issue I wanted to discuss was you're you're just continually saying PUFA, but that is a generic term which includes not only omega six but omega three, right? Which is the controversial portion of this because there's a still just probably just every bit maybe even the same people who are convinced that that glucose should be avoided at all costs are people who believe that omega three should be embraced at all costs. So I, I'm those same people though will acknowledge that you need like anything you need to be selective in the, the omega threes you're eating. So. I for I have long advocated that taking tri most omega three supplements is a prescription for disaster because they're essentially uh, synthetic. They're highly processed. They're typically ethyl esters. They're not the typical omega three. Uh, so th that might be ninety percent of the omega three supplement industry. I don't know the numbers, but you you might have a better take on that. But th the central question becomes. You know, I think omega threes potentially are more toxic than omega sixes because they're more oxidizable. But if you're, and then they're they're more easily damaged. So um, that, but does that mean they need to be excluded at all costs? I think not. I think if you get, it seems to me, from my perspective, that if you can get it from healthy food sources, and this is not, this is essentially a game changer with respect to what are those healthy food sources, because many people think the fatty fish are the best ones, but especially cold water fish like salmon can be. But the the more, the colder the water that the, sh the fish is grown in, the more omega-3 they're going to have because it's used to, to make the, the tissue not solidify at colder temperatures. Exactly. Uh, so uh, it seems like warmer water fish, primarily from the tropics, you know, like yeah. tilapia yeah. you can get from Colombia yeah. or Central America. Carp, you know, like especially. Uh, would be relatively low in omega-3. You have enough, and especially not just the omega-3, but the peripheral additional micronutrients, like the resolvents and the protectants that seem to provide some additional beneficial uh utility so uh I, I just wonder what your take is on it because i mean it, it is an area of major confusion especially when you start diving into this so the uh the reason i think the omega-3 supplementation came up at least in the in medicine and, and you know and, and the mainstream press is that they uh started to see that uh that the omega-6 is actually uh you know a disease promoter 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and because the, the fish oils that are sold commercially, they're actually their industrial byproduct. They're the waste product of the fish industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they needed a market for those. And they said, okay, so yes, omega-6 are bad, right? But you still need the polyunsaturated fats because they're essential, right? But mm-hmm. guess what? You should be replacing the omega-6 with omega-3 because mm-hmm. it's the ratio of the omega-3 to omega-6 that really determines your risk of heart disease, and by taking more omega-3 at the expense of the omega-6, you'll be lowering inflammation and all good things will happen to you, mm-hmm. right? Right. That's, so, the, that's the theory. That's what they yeah. preach, right? But part of that is correct because when you feed the, the, the omega-3s through these enzymes, COX and LOX, which take uh, omega-6 as, a, as, a, as an input, as a raw material, you will get a, a slightly less inflammatory versions of the prostaglandins and the leukotrienes. But that's not the whole story. Since, as you mentioned, the, the omega-3s are much more easily combustible, peroxidizable, mm-hmm. they're producing probably 10 times more of the toxic aldehyde wow. and other byproducts that the omega-6 are producing. Um, so you would expect, since many of those are directly carcinogenic, you would expect that a very high intake of omega-3 will actually have high correlations with several types of cancer, which has already been confirmed. In the Scandinavian countries, they eat a tremendous amount of cold water fish. They have a very high rates of melanoma, which used to be thought of as a, as a sun-related cancer. It is actually not. Um, and basically, uh, when you, when they start feeding these omega-3s in clinical trials for, for diseases such as autism, cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease, uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, all of them bombed. All of them basically were, were terminated after phase one, not only because they were found ineffective, but because these the people in the active group started having serious adverse events is what they call what the industry calls it and and if, if to this day if you go and if you look at the clinical trials I think there's like a summary of article which said that fish oil have we been sent fishing i think that was the article mm-hmm. it's basically is that we got count again <laughs> we got the tricked for decades now into buying this industrial waste uh, byproduct of the fish industry on the on on the hypothesis that it's less inflammatory than omega six, so it should be better for us than the omega six. Well, the question shouldn't be less harmful; should be like if it's not beneficial, then it should not be consumed. And even though they were partially correct on the less inflammatory claim, they're they're actually wrong, and they never talked about the much more carcinogenic nature of the omega trees because of they're so easily peroxidized, um, and basically all of these aldehydes. Malondaldehyde being the, the probably the most well-known one, a known human carcinogen listed on NIH site, listed on the European uh, Health Agency site. Um, nobody will argue that having a high levels of malondaldehyde is a good thing for you. Well, guess what? The easiest way and the most effective way of raising your MDA, malondaldehyde, is by consuming omega-3s. Wow. So what do you what's your take on having a small amount through warm water fish? Uh, uh, and seafood. I think that's great because they're, you know, we're eating them in the whole foods. There are many different um, nutrients that are present there uh, aside yeah, from retinol, the saturated fat. And retinol can be in there too. Exactly. Retinol can be in there too, which protects from some of the toxic effects. Uh, there is also the saturated fats in the tropical fish are going to protect from many of the, actually they'll protect us, the omega trees from peroxidizing. Let's assume for mm-hmm. a second that omega three does have some beneficial effect, but it's if it, if it, if it does exist, Without a doubt, it's only in the form where it's not peroxidized. So 
the saturated fats in the tropical fish will keep it in that state for a little bit longer. Uh, it will still peroxidize eventually. It's so unstable, but it will keep it in the in into into this uh, sort of like a, a precursor state if we assume that it has any benefit. But also the the seafood has selenium, has zinc, uh, has uh, other trace minerals, magnesium, um, um, sulfur. All of these things actually work together to prevent any potential damage that the omega three has. Um, and because in the tropical fish it will be such a small amount, chances are actually you will probably be digested by the stomach. I mean, you'll be broken down by the stomach acid and will not even absorb. You'll be able to wow, actually metabolize it before it gets to the tissues. That's an interesting concept. It makes perfect sense, though. Yeah, and there's probably some truth to the fact that you can use your nose to help you identify, yeah. uh, you know, if the fish doesn't smell good, it's probably not a good idea to eat it. Yeah. You know, even, even grizzly bears ref refuse to eat rancid fish. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they're, and they're evolved to you know that's that's all they eat right and when they especially the Kodiak ones that's the like yeah. main source of protein when the when the fish is migrating they refuse to eat uh, uh, the the rancid fish and uh, when you're getting these fish supplements from the market I have mm -hmm. not had a single case where I would get a supplement like that when I used to take it back in my paleo uh, years and when mm -hmm. I opened the container there was not a single case where I wasn't hit by this disgusting rancid smell. Uh, this means already what you're already getting is peroxidized omega-3. So you're not actually getting even the things that the studies were claimed were good for you. It's already like the combusted stuff that's we know it's bad for you. Even the uh, the this the commercial drug, I think it's called Lavazza, is the one mm -hmm. that got approved for yeah, lowering your triglycerides. High, really high dose omega-3 supplement. Yeah, the ethyl esters, even they smell really bad. I don't know how yeah. they even managed to market them. I think there was a they hired a uh, like a like a I don't know what the name is, but the person who is uh, an expert in like in in, in um, uh, modifying odors so people find them acceptable. So even mm -hmm. during the trials, they said the active group didn't want to take the lavazza, so they had to trick it by putting some kind of thing vanilla extract it was to to conceal the smell. So that's really what what what's being sold to us. All right, so because throughout this interview you've been referring to this PUFA and I just want people to understand that's not just omega-6 from your perspective that's really most all the omega-3s so you want as low PUFA diet as, as as total so why don't we go into some of the macro recommendations now so what what do you perceive the ideal rec dietary recommendation is do, is it typically as a percentage of total uh daily daily calories or do, yeah. do you have like a specific gram it seems like anything over 10 grams no matter how much you weigh is probably not a good idea you really want to go under 10 but i guess what what's the range that you would advocate for for pufa in general or for pufa in general right yeah i would say 10 grams i mean if you can get it uh, there's a study showing that if you get it under two then uh, these people almost never develop cancer so, a, you know, a grape, but it's it, 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 at that point, you'll be becoming probably orthorexic. Uh, it's it, yeah, yeah. next it to impossible really, to get it there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it seems like it's really, it's hard to go below five, yeah. but you, See, it's you, not, it's relatively easy to get below 10. Yeah. Sure. And then, and if you're concerned about it, let's say you're going to an event somewhere, you know, it's going to be poof in the processed food there. Just take some vitamin E before that. Just a hundred units is probably going to be sufficient unless you're with, with, really the, food. The, with yes, the food. With the food. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's vitamin E, <laughs> the trick for everything. All right. So the, getting back to the, the cancer question uh, or, or prophylactic therapy mm -hmm. for, to prevent cancer, so clear. It's. I'm just going to summarize, it and you give me your feedback on it. It seems like you definitely want a low poofa diet, and you just went over the recommendations. 
clearly under 10. If you can get to two or three, that's great. It's really hard to do without becoming orthorexic. So, but you can try. Uh, so that's probably, I would list that as number one. What, what, how would you rate that as within everything else we talked about? Well, that's definitely the number one thing that yeah. I would strive for. The second yeah. thing that I would strive for is if you're getting eating carbs, make sure they're not then they're not the, the high fructose starch. Yeah, yeah. They avoid the high fructose corn syrup because it is mostly starch and preservable starch, of, you know, of all things. Um, and then you eat the, the simple sugars that from ripe fruit, uh, raw honey, if you can actually confirm that it's taken from a beehive instead of re-engineered mm-hmm. in a lab that's just high fructose corn syrup with some uh, flavors and, and what and colors and whatnot, right? Um, and then if you cannot get that, then basically the third fallback option will be the pure crystalline sugar organic version if you can get well, it. Well, fruit there. before that, right? Yeah, fruit and honey. So like the first oh, two. Enough. Okay, sorry. Uh, so what do you, what, what's your, the, the general range of macro uh, composition? Uh, ideally, carbs, most yeah. of the studies that I've seen, I think Dr. Pete uh, agreed with that on one interview, said that the uh, ideal is not known, but most of the studies that looked at it said that about about equal uh, amounts in terms so of 30, 30, 33, 33, 33, 33, yeah. yeah. Wow. For a healthy person. Now, if you have metabolic problems or some kind of inflammatory yeah. disease, you probably need to be cutting down on the fats because, as we said, even with your best effort, the more fat you consume pro rata, the more puffer you will probably be intaking. And do you think if you have excess fat intake, does that going to impair your ability to optimally digest protein? Uh, I think it does because the bile acids, because when you intake fat, if your gallbladder and liver are working fine, mm-hmm. you're going to be releasing a lot of bile acids. The bile acids actually interfere with the absorption of protein. Interesting. That's fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. Okay. So poof is as low as possible. Vitamin E, the doses we discussed, and actually both of our companies produce a really good vitamin E. So, you know, we we understand what the what the requirements are, and then aspirin or willow bark extract, which may be even better. Um, niacinamide, I niacinamide, so and I, I like the dose of about fifty milligrams three times a day. You like a little bit higher. Uh, no more than a hundred milligrams two or three times a day. I think the total, yeah, yeah. if it be kept under three hundred, several yeah. animal studies demonstrated very good metabolic effects from that dosage only. If if, if yeah. you go higher, a lot of the metabolic good metabolic effects kind of like uh, plateaued or even w- declined. There are other benefits, but for metabolic purposes, for most people, two hundred fifty to three hundred milligrams daily, no matter how it's yeah. taken, is probably best. Uh, I was basing it on the ability to improve NAD. Yeah. Plus uh, the, the the oxidized version. Uh, and this, the study I saw was like two milligrams per kilogram in, yeah. d- in divided doses. You don't want to take it all at once. That, that's the other thing. You need to separate it apart because the, this is not a one dose per day deal. <laughs> you can't take 300 milligrams and think it's going to work. And the reason is, is the niacinamide is negative feedback for uh, the sirtuins, which are the longevity proteins. And, and it, it saturates the, the uh, NAMPT enzyme, which synthesizes NAD. So if you give too much niacinamide, it's not yeah. going to get processed to NAD. You actually it will inhibit its own conversion because yeah, yeah. the body thinks you're giving too much. That's what it is, right? And the NAMPT is the, like the, the primary way that your body makes. Ninety-five percent of it's made from that enzyme. All right, so the niacinamide, and these are you can buy <laughs> literally if it's a powder. We're actually going to make a fifty milligram tablet really soon. It should be out within a few months. I'll buy it. I've never been able to find 50 oh, no, or 100 well, milligrams. I'll, wait, you you just, I'm going to send you a, a, a five-year supply, <laughs> okay? <laughs> no, you just get, get, let's give me your offline, give me your address. I'll send it some to you. Um, but 
the so not the, but you can buy i mean you don't have to buy it from us you can just get bionicinamide powder and you get like a five-year supply for 15 dollars. you know it's just pretty cheap and so is this so is this salicylic acid or aspirin a good type of aspirin yeah. so that so we we knocked out some of those the vitamin e a little more expensive of course um but not terribly when you compare it to drugs uh and then uh, caffeine, yeah, caffeine. oh you like caffeine i've just yeah so that would be an argument for taking aspirin with caffeine. And there is a drug on the market. I think it's called, that they sell it in powder form. It's called BCs or something. Um, uh, there is like a, it's very popular apparently in the, in the American South. Um, mm. The, the, uh, the initials are BC and it's given, it's sold as a drug for headaches. Um, mm. But multiple studies have shown that taking caffeine with aspirin increases the uh, blood concentrations of both and prolongs the effects of both. When taken together so you can get by by taking much lower dosages if your doctor is concerned about let's say like if you're taking more than 100 milligrams of aspirin uh yeah. then you can take 50, 50 milligrams of aspirin and 50 milligrams caffeine uh several studies show that raised the metabolic rate by about seven percent and kept it elevated for up to 12 hours and those wow. are tiny doses yeah that's fantastic fantastic really good pearl thank you uh so the aspirin, the caffeine, maybe together, uh, retinol, um, maybe 5,000 units, unless you're really eating a lot of organ meat, then you don't need it, of course. Um, and uh, I suspect you're a fan of copper too, right? Yes. Uh, it's the crucial cofactor for the, uh, the finals, the, really the rate-limiting factor, uh, cytochrome C oxidase, which is complex four. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's been shown that with aging, the amount of copper in that enzyme basically decreases while the iron increases. And the less copper you have in that enzyme, basically the lower your metabolic, your metabolic rate would be. But copper can be dangerous when taken as a supplement, depending on what salt it is and how much you take. Um, you can probably get a decent amount of copper from uh, ruminant liver or yeah. from seafood such as oysters and shrimp. Uh, and in general, basically, the many of the marine animals actually have uh, a lot more copper in their tissues than the land ones. Yeah. So which form of cop copper supplement do you like? I, I, I've been recommending the bisglycinate. The bisglycinate is very good, very high bioavailability. Um, you can The cheapest one, I think, is copper chloride, um, yeah. which you can get it. But uh, I don't think our body is... is uh, it can handle chloride well outside of the sodium chloride, which is probably yeah, the yeah. only chlorine compass we can do. And uh, uh, there's also a um, copper sulfate, which you can also get, and yeah, copper yeah. acetate. Yeah, uh, copper sulfate is what you use agriculturally. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but all of that's, these... a, that's actually a pretty good way to get it if you want to have it from foods. And that's where I got most of mine was I have an acerola cherry tree, which gives you some good vitamin C, about 80 milligrams per cherry. And I spray it with uh, copper sulfate. Awesome. So you get yeah. also the copper as well. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or you can drop a penny in a in a glass of vinegar and basically after about a week you'll be you'll be bright blue and you can take a few drops of that every day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well that, ideally that's a pre-1964 penny because after that I, I don't think there's much copper in the penny. Oh yeah, that's right. They started putting what uh, nickel, I think, which is bad. Yeah, you, you want to be nickel. <laughs> nickel toxic, that's for damn sure. Uh but yeah, pre-64. I'm I probably have about fifty to hundred pounds of pre-64 pennies that my mom saved that I wound up with. Um, any other recommendations? Because now all of these that we're talking about prevent cancer. Why? Because they make the cell metabolically healthier. And as you referenced earlier, it's these cells that become deranged and their metabolisms 
is uh, is is shifted so they can't work normally and they become deformed and become cancerous. So we want to get transform them back to normal with the nutrients they need. Yeah. And it looks like uh, every single one of these actually is known anti-inflammatory compound, which brings us back to PUFA and the studies that showed if you really restrict PUFA, then you really don't develop cancer, which means the cancer is an inflammatory trigger disease. Uh, and I think most doctors at this point will probably agree with that statement, even though they say, we don't know the exact pathway, they're not going to be willing or able to name PUFA as the villain. They'll say, yes, cancer is it can eventually can develop as a result of inflammation. So by either drastically restricting PUFA or in a more normal life, eating some PUFA, but taking these precautions, which all of them have anti-PUFA, anti-inflammatory effect, I think that's the more reasonable way of, of uh, preventing cancer. Okay, perfect. So uh, any other recommendations that you have overall? I mean, generically as a protocol that almost everyone would benefit from. Looks like uh, just lifestyle in general, avoiding routine and avoiding uh, toxic situations. I mean, I don't think that avoiding toxicity is is, is any news here, but the routine yeah, yeah. Turns, out, turns out to be a very powerful uh, metabolic inhibitor. What is that now? What is, what is that? Just just doing routine work, just, oh, just routine. mundane, routine. yeah, routine work that uh, you you don't like. You, you just kind of like go through the motions, and you're saying, okay, oh, I just okay. have to do it. So if you so find be, yourself you at a job about what you do, yeah, if you're kind of spacing out and you're kind of like just going through the motions, waiting for the day to end, it's probably time to like look for either another job or another activity because it's not, it's very uh, metabolically harmful by increasing the amount of serotonin. Serotonin is the master of routine. Yeah. Um, and serotonin is a master metabolic inhibitor. So yeah, that's that a, that's a that's a topic for another podcast because I know that we'd have to go really deep. And I I, I I think you've had six or seven posts last night on your blog, yeah. and a bunch of them were on serotonin. But serotonin, you're right, that's a pernicious thing. And and Ray was actually pretty big in. Well, I think he got his PhD in estrogen, didn't he? Yes, uh, estrogen and progesterone, because he said all the other disciplines when he approached yeah. the... That's another said, topic we've got to talk about is <laughs> progesterone, pregnenolone. We talked a bit, a, a bit in the past, but I want to be back for those and the serotonin, because the, the, the I mean, they're doing the exact opposite in the pharma industry is they're putting these ser serotonin uptake re-inhibitor drugs, the antidepressants primarily, uh, and they're making things worse. And, and at the same time, they're, they're working on drugs that actually are serotonin agonist. Mm -hmm antagonist to block the serotonin. So they say with the poison and the remedy. Did you see the recent interview with the Pfizer director? Sounds oh. like Pfizer has been doing this with many different interventions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they've climbed really rapidly. They weren't the biggest in the world, but they certainly are now. And they have a, pretty much all the, the, the damaging characteristics of a, of a company that's not so, doing what A nest of snakes. <laughs> yeah, a nest of snakes for sure. All right. Well, so obviously you have your blog, which is, I think, heydut, H-A-I-D-U-T dot, uh, dot me, M-E. Dot me. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And that and leads then, you to Twitter, which is Twitter slash heydut. It's the same thing. Twitter. Okay. And then um, what's the best way to people who want to dive into this to learn more? Fortunately, I mean, I'm really fascinated. One of my projects is to really digest much of what Ray has written because there's so much wisdom there. But it's a lot. I mean, he's probably I've compiled a lot of his articles. and I think I must have like five 
gigabytes of information. And I'm hoping, you know, we got this new resource and I'm sure you've heard about this chat GPT, which is a large language learning model. And it's just going to get better and better. It's kind of like it is artificial intelligence, but it really is driven by the data that is fed and it's not been fed Ray Pete's data. So wouldn't it be wonderful to give the feed them you know, the the gigabytes of information that Ray's written over the years in the repeat form and digest that. And then you can ask it questions to get an answer. Within within a few minutes of it, of it being released, we already were discussing this on the forum. How can we convert Ray into digital form uh, by training this this model on his, or his articles? And I think yeah. there's a project under works. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, it's a great, great, great technology. Just very dangerous and be careful how you use it. Yeah. Right. And right now, it's the modeling is based on flawed data because the, it's controlled by the people who are controlling the narrative. But but it can be used. It's like a weapon. You know, it can be good or it can that's be right. bad. It's neutral. Well, it's up to the that's mind. Right. Who's using so I, it. I, that to me, that's the most exciting aspect. Is to, you know primarily for Ray Pete's work, but then generally natural medicine. You know, because essentially the, the, these models are going to be alternative to search engines. Because what what with Google, who owns ninety five percent of the search engines in the world, maybe more, maybe as much as ninety seven percent, literally has obliterated. They they essentially burned the library of Alexandra, which is the internet. Yes. The article, I mean, the websites are still up and you can get them if you know the URL, but people find them, the URLs through the search engines. And that they that has essentially been, most all the good information in natural health has been censored. Yeah. So the workaround for this are these chatbots, you know, that, that have access to the same information, the uncensored web, and you can access it through them. So that's, that's a ray of hope. That's a relatively new ray. And I'm excited about that. I think the, in the next couple of years, we'll see people releasing tools that will allow you to train your own bot. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm confident that's coming. Yeah. There's no question about it. Yeah. So, All right, so we'll we'll be back again. And uh, really, thank you for your time and your insights and your wisdom and uh, providing such valuable information. Appreciate it. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me again. Okay.